Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot's new podcast, Adaptation Nation, where we read it, we watch it, and we talk about it. That's right, Book Riot is taking on your favorite literary adaptations, including new releases, old favorites, underrated gems, and interesting messes. We'll dive into how the books and adaptations themselves came to be, the publication and production backstories, casting what-ifs, critical reception, and more, to answer that ever-burning question, was the book actually better? And does that question even matter? Up first, Jeff, co-host of the Book Riot podcast, and Amanda and Jen, hosts of Get Booked, will be breaking down the sci-fi classic Dune and the new adaptation. Subscribe on your podcast catcher of choice starting November 1st. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. We're recording on Saturday, November 6th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, y- you know, chugging a lot. I don't know how many ways I can be like, <laughs> just like getting by. How are you? Indeed, we are. We are getting by. I, um, so <laughs> a thing that I was obsessed with early in the pandemic was Animal Crossing. I bought a Nintendo Switch specifically so that I could play Animal Crossing. And I played Animal Crossing a lot for a period of time. And then I decided that I had been playing too much Animal Crossing and I quit cold turkey, I just stopped playing. And then this month or in the last couple of weeks, Animal Crossing got me back because they released an update that has a lot of cool new stuff and they released an add-on game where you get to design vacation homes for these like little animal people. So now I'm back. I'm back on Animal Crossing and it is it was great, but it's also kind of terrible because when I play video games, I just like play them. That's all I do. And that's not really like the best for me personally. <laughs> Can someone go back and count the number of times Kim said Animal Crossing in this? <laughs> I'm like way in it. Jenny, my sister, is way in it too. And so we're like doing it all together. So I find this interesting because I got a Switch for my birthday, I think. I mean, what is time anymore? But I believe it was my birthday this year. And I got a few games for it. And one of them was Animal Crossing because it's so big. I don't think it's the type of game I like because mm-hmm. – there's so much of just like, you know, just like run around. And that yeah. feels so like without, I know there are also tasks, but it's so like yeah. free form and without like yeah. structure that I was just like, no, <laughs> this is stressing yeah. me out. You know, I think that it for me like hit like just at the right time because like it came out right at the beginning of the pandemic when like things were sort of locked down and we couldn't go anywhere and we couldn't do anything. And it was very stressful and like anxiety, like the whole world. And it was just very soothing because like all you did was like get up and like harvest your fruit trees and run around and like dig up fossils and just like just like stuff. Uh, And then after a while, it started to feel like I just had like chores to do in Animal Crossing. And I was like, I don't like doing chores in my real life. So why am I going to play a video game where all I have to do is chores? So that's about the time when I quit. 
And so I'm, I'm not interested in like going back to the sort of like run around and randomly do stuff, but I did love decorating people's houses. It reminds me like of The Sims a little bit where like the most fun part of that is like designing houses for me. So the expansion that came out, you basically like go pe- design people's little houses and I find that pretty enjoyable. Oh, uh, yeah. See, I feel like I am so bad at designing <laughs> houses that it that also stresses me out because i'm like i don't know this can go here and then it's just like the worst place to put it and they're like well now i can't reach my bed so uh yeah luckily the little animal people don't really care that much and anything you do they're like wow this is amazing and you're like yes (laughs) i know my sister's an architect though so like she's very good at designing uh buildings so like we've been comparing our little like designed houses and hers are just completely amazing and mine are like oh look there's a fireplace there good job (laughs) So we'll (laughs) Well, see how long it comes before I get really competitive about it. I'm glad there's an update, though. I know a lot of people were like, well, now there's nothing left for me to do in the game. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's Mm -hmm. that's good for the many, many Animal Crossing fans there are out there. That's true. That's true. I do also have to say I did finish a book, though, despite like my Animal Crossing time. Um, On the last episode, I talked about the genome defense inside the epic legal battle to determine who owns your DNA by uh, Jorge Contreras, which is a book about a particular Supreme Court case looking at the idea of gene patenting and whether companies can patent parts of your genetic code. And I I finished that one and I loved it. It was absolutely awesome. It was such a cool – I loved seeing, like, the whole case from, like, start to finish. And he was really – the author was really great about, like, telling people's stories and how this case affected people and the people who were involved in it. And just, like, a really great, like, overview of, like, genetics and patent law and how the Supreme Court works. Uh, I just thought it was really fascinating. So I recommend that one, The Genome Defense by Jorge Contreras. Oh, that's awesome. I uh, finished, you just reminded me, uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kristen Kobes Dumais. And she is a professor and writes, I talked about it on the podcast a while ago, but it's such a good discussion of, it's a very specific history of evangelicalism in America via the lens of masculinity and sort of how... Because there were a lot of questions, especially after the um, two elections ago, about how evangelicals could support a candidate who seemingly uh, went against many of their values. And what she basically says in the book is that this is a long time coming and that it was – if you were looking at the sort of track record, it was not a surprise. And sort of explaining how we got there and like this culture of like militant masculinity that came about in like the early 2000s in the evangelical circles. It was just like a lot. I also had read a giant history of evangelicalism for my uh, church book group, and that one was a lot harder to follow because it was just so, like, sweeping. And I felt like this history, she laid it out really clearly, but again, with a very specific – it's not, like, all of, like, evangelicalism. It's all just, Mm -hmm. like, very, like, masculinity and the authors who were writing about that in that group, and it's just – it's really good. So, again, Jesus and John Wayne by Christian Cobus Dumais. Excellent. I'm glad you followed up with that one. Uh, Oh, also, side note, we have, (laughs) in case you maybe missed it in the previous episodes, we have a holiday gift guide episode coming up November 23rd. So if you would like recommendations for, uh, especially because, again, you know, the the oft spoke of supply chain issues, um, you need to get those orders in early. Email us at forreal at bookriot.com, F-O-R-R-E-A-L at bookriot.com. And just say, like, I'm looking for a present for 
this person, they like this book and this book or this type of book or, you know, something for myself. And I just, you know, surprise me on the podcast. Send that to us and we will talk about those on November 23rd. Just get them in by November 15th, which is, oh my goodness, coming up. It is. This is our next episode. So if you have requests, like send them in right away because we want to – I love recommending books to people. So this will be very exciting. All right. So that will uh, share our first sponsor. Uh, our first sponsor for this episode is Far Side of the Moon by Lisa Jorgensen from Chicago Review Press. Uh, and Far Side of the Moon is the untold, fully authorized story of the lives of Frank and Susan Borman. Uh, Frank Borman was a famous astronaut and an instrumental part of the Apollo space program. I bet his wife Susan was just as much a warrior. This is a real-life love story that is far from a fairy tale because life as a military wife was demanding, but Susan always rose to the occasion. So uh, when Frank joined NASA and was selected to command the first mission to orbit the moon, it meant putting on a brave face for the world as her husband risked his life for the space race. The pressure and anxiety were overwhelming, and eventually Susan's well-hidden depression and alcoholism finally came to light. Frank had to come to terms with how his mission-above-all-else mentality contributed to his wife's suffering. As Susan healed, she was able to begin helping others who suffered in silence from mental illness and addiction. This book is about how Frank and Susan's love and commitment to each other is still overcoming life's challenges, even beyond their years as an Apollo commander and the founder of the Astronaut Wives Club. Uh, And I love books about space, and I'm fascinated by the women behind astronauts, so this one sounds really great. That is Far Side of the Moon by Lisa Jorgensen from Chicago Review Press. All right, and so with that, we'll shift gears into nonfiction in the news. Uh, We have a couple of stories to share this week. First one is yours, Alice. Yeah, the 2021 Kirkus Prize winners were announced, which is very exciting. Uh, Kirkus reviews over 10,000 books every year. and Yeah, that's a lot. Um, And so from that, they uh, brought it down to 1,531 and then had 18 finalists. So if your book is in that finalist list, like, good job. Um, (laughs) my goodness. But the winner for nonfiction was Punch Me Up to the Gods, a memoir by Brian Broom. I read this book, uh, I talked about it on the podcast, and it's so good. Brian Broom writes about being black, being gay. And I know that if you say those in like sort of broad terms, you're like, yeah, like there have been memoirs about that before. His like, his voice is so specific. It's so good. And just... He just tells the story. It's like his family and his relationship with his parents and also like just like dealing with their poverty, but also like being queer and like feeling so isolated. And I feel like specifically the way that he talks about isolation and like being at these gay bars and just feeling like so kind of like shut out while also being part of this community. It's just so good. So well-deserved. Absolutely. But again, that is uh, Punch Me Up to the Gods by Brian Broom. I absolutely recommend it. Excellent. Yeah, as soon as you sent me this link and we're like, this book is so good. I got it out from the library. So it's sitting on my stack to hopefully read soon because you are so enthused about it. So that's awesome. My new story is... Maybe a little bit not as obviously about nonfiction, but kind of. So uh, Scotty Pippen, who was a basketball player who played for Chicago Bulls for a long time, uh, has a new memoir out. And the article we're going to link to is an interview with him in the New York Times titled, Scotty Pippen Takes Aim at Michael Jordan in New Book. And so it's partially a review of the book, or like just talks about Unguarded, his new memoir. Uh, and so Pandab, the author, calls it a masterclass in settling scores or creating new ones. 
And so apparently in his memoir, Scottie Pippen just like lashes out at a lot of different people, uh, including Michael Jordan and other uh, teammates like Charles Barkley and Isaiah Thomas. Uh, I don't think Charles Barkley was a teammate. I think he was just another player at the time, but he was on the Phoenix Suns. Thank you. The reason that this article caught my attention is because earlier this year, I think, I got very obsessed with The Last Dance, which was that 10-episode um, documentary series about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and their six uh, championship wins over a decade. And a, a lot of it is about Michael Jordan and what a great athlete he was. And so it's very complimentary of Michael Jordan. Like, on the whole, there's some, like, a little bit of, like, tense moments and people being like, oh, Michael Jordan, not as great as we thought. Um, but largely, it's pretty positive. And I thought that Scottie Pippen in that, he's interviewed a lot, I thought that he, like, seemed, like, pretty supportive of his teammates and stuff. So I was really fascinated to find out that, like, perhaps not and that this uh, memoir might show a different side and a different opinion. And I also, I really encourage you to check out the link and read the interview because he is so grumpy in it. Like, he is just, like, not interested in being interviewed or questioned at all, uh, which I normally would really bother me. But something about it just really made me laugh as I was reading it because I was like, he doesn't doesn't give a crap about any of this. Like, he wrote his book. He's, like, saying his piece and then he's done. And I think that's, I think it's funny. So I put this one in mostly, like, because it was interesting to me given, like, how much I liked The Last Dance when I watched it. But If you're interested in any of that, you can see some basketball players uh, holding grudges with each other in the interview. Um, I knew Charles Barkley played Phoenix Suns in the 90s because of the game NBA Jam, (laughs) (laughs) where for the Bulls, you could be Scottie Pippen or I think you could be Michael Jordan. Maybe not. I don't remember that. I remember Scottie Pippen was one of them. And yeah, I I would always either be, oh, was he? He was Phoenix Suns. I was like, maybe he was the Blue Horn. It doesn't matter. Anyway. The grumpiness via memoir thing reminded me my favorite opera singer. I studied opera for a long time. And my favorite singer is Beverly Sills, who's a coloratura soprano, which is the highest you can go. Um, But she has two memoirs. And one came out in 1976. And the other, I believe, I used to know this. I'm going to say 1987, but it could be 1980. But the first one was while she was still singing. And it's called Bubbles. And it's very like positive and talking about how great opera is and here's her story and the other one is right after she retired so it probably is 1980 and she is like so bitter and like so mad and i remember i read it as like a 15 year old where you know you don't have like a lot of knowledge but i remember being 15 and being like whoa (laughs) like she has a big shift here yeah. So it's just like what's going on in your life at the time and like Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How much yeah, like how much you feel like those relationships need to be maintained and like what you see like your next steps being and yeah. all that. Yeah. She had a lot of like this person wronged me and then they got theirs and I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a future episode. Memoirs with grudges. <laughs> I think that would be that'd be hilarious. because uh, there there are a lot of good ones. Yeah, so uh, that is nonfiction in the news. Uh, we'll jump into new nonfiction now. My first pick is also a sports book, interestingly enough, called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League by Brittany De La Creta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Uh, and so this book come, came out November 2nd from Bold Type Books, and it is the story of the National Women's Football League and the players who were part of it. So I had no idea that there used to be a National Women's Football League. It was something that was not 
super official. There were lots of women's football teams around the country, and they played each other and did these things, but it wasn't like as formal, I would say, as other sports leagues. But um, it sort of started in 1967 uh, when a, a guy, I think his name was Sid Freeman, decided in Cleveland promoted a group of women to try and be a traveling football team. And so it was supposed to be sort of a like a joke, basically, um, but the women really like wanted to play and wanted to be football players. And so they're tenacity really helped like launch this league. And so the National Women's Football League sort of took root in different cities across the country over a couple of decades. So like the 60s, 70s and 80s, which is really tied to in the book, they talk about um, how it is tied to like this feminism happening at the time and Title IX and all these other things helping women in sports. And so the book, the two authors interview a ton of former players from teams like the Detroit Demons, the Toledo Troopers and the LA Dandelions, which I don't know. I just really love that. And so it it tells their stories, and it's really focused on the players of these leagues. The early chapters are about sort of a rivalry between, I think, two teams in Texas and, like, how the people got on those teams and what those what that rivalry was like for them. And then it pops out and goes out to a lot of the different teams and looks at, like, how the women became football players, what it was like to be a football player at the time in this league, and then, like, what happened as the league didn't, as the league sort of broke apart and didn't continue. It's really fascinating. I love books that focus on the people of institutions. And so I think their focus on the players and their stories is a really good way to go. So it it is sort of a history of this league, but it's really about the people who played. And it, it's just really, it's really fascinating. And I, like, I, I had no idea that this was a thing, but I saw it and I was like, ah, maybe this is like a league of their own except for football. And I think it kind of is, but it's also different because it's a different time and it's sort of in a different um, context of, of like the world at large. And so a football team obviously like wouldn't have worked at the time that the league of their own um, National Women's Baseball League would have have worked. So I just think this one's really fascinating. It's really fun. I think I actually I think this would actually be like a great gift book if you have a, a woman in your life who is a sports fan or who is a football fan. Cause I think women in football, people women who like football, like it's there's there's just not a lot there. And so I think this would be a kind of a cool a cool way to like see football in a different light for people who maybe don't know about the history of this group. So that is Hail Mary, the rise and fall of the National Women's Football League by Brittany De La Creta and Lizzie Darcangelo. I hope that Leah Their Own TV series is coming out soon. Oh, me too. I love that movie so much. It's, ugh, it's so good. <laughs> so good. It's just like, especially if you grew up in the 90s as like, mm-hmm. like the saw that movie in elementary school, I feel like every, mm-hmm. uh, maybe every one of my classmates had seen it for sure. Yeah. And then like people, I don't know. It's such a, I don't know, it's a cultural touchstone for a very particular group. Gina Davis and Tom, like Tom Hanks, just, just so good. I do think that it is. Uh, is ironic the right word to use that a movie that is almost entirely women uh the most famous quote is by a man that's true that's true there's no crying in baseball but anyway there should be crying in baseball (laughs) my first new book for this week is tastemakers seven immigrant women who revolutionized food in america by mayuk sen uh sen is a james beard winning food writer, which uh, apparently have been called the Oscars of the food world, which is pretty Mm. impressive. And this was uh, for his profile on Princess Pamela, who was a soul food restaurateur who vanished when she was 70. 
And uh, so he wrote this long form article about her and won a James Beard Award, which is, again, very impressive. So in this, he sort of takes that and expands it to these seven immigrant women who include... Chao Yang Bue from China, Elena Zelayete from Mexico, uh, French chef Madeleine Kaman, uh, Marcella Hazan from Italy, Indian chef Julie Sani, uh, Najmi Batmanglij from Iran, and Norma Shirley from Jamaica. So if I butchered any of those name pronunciations, I apologize. But it's so cool to just not only get to sort of like look into this this wide breadth of you know sort of like food provenance but in terms of like the the vast array of countries represented here but also talk about how they influenced cooking and and food choices in America and uh Sen calls himself a a queer child of Bengali immigrants and so you know that's one reason that sort of like inspired him to write this and just Every chapter, like every profile just talks about the women and how like, you know, their immigration experience, how that but the like, obviously, more particularly, what their sort of food background brought, and how they were able to to influence things. And it's just like, it's so cool. <laughs> it's It's like a different angle on that, you know, like, seven famous women you should know. Instead, it's like very specifically, like these women who revolutionized food in America. So I feel like uh, speaking of gifts for the holidays. <laughs> this feels like a good one. If you know anyone who's interested in either food or women's history or sort of like anything tangential to that, this is really cool. So again, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America by Mayuk Sen. Excellent. Yeah, I read a little bit of that one and it's really it's really interesting. I love the way he frames uh, the the project and how he picked the different women to profile and kind of what their stories tell us about food and the way we think about it in the United States. So yeah, great pick. So my second pick is called Black and Blue, A Memoir of Racism and Resilience by Veronica Gorey, which came out November 2nd from Scribe USA. Uh, and this is a book by, uh, it's a memoir by a woman who was an Aboriginal woman who worked as a police officer and fought for justice in the Australian police force. And so before I get started, I just want to say, like, this is a book with a lot of, a lot of violence. There are trigger warnings for sexual assault, childhood abuse, violence, uh, racism, like, just just a whole lot of them. So it's a it's a not a, a light book to read, but I think it's a really interesting and important one. So um, Veronica Gorey is uh, an Aboriginal woman in Australia. She grew up poor. Um, her parents were she raised a lot about how she loved them very much, but they were very inconsistent. They were she kind of bounced back and forth between her father and her mother. Her mother was an alcoholic and had trouble caring for her children. Um, her extended family has a lot of intergenerational trauma that affected them as Aboriginal people who I don't want to say it's some uh, compare it exactly to what happened to Indigenous people in the United States, but I think there are some similar threads about um, you know moving Aboriginal people out of their land and all of those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of intergenerational generational trauma that she has to kind of face as a child and then into her adulthood. And so she watches her family like be affected by law enforcement in some really negative and harmful ways. And so eventually decides that she's going to become a police officer. And she is one of the few Aboriginal police officers in Australia. And so she spends a decade on the force 
where she writes about seeing institutional racism and sexism, but how she tried to like fight through those to provide support for civilians in need and um, what that experience was like for her and what she suffered as a result. And so it is a, a very intense book. It is written in a very um, straightforward way. Like, I think you can sort of tell that she was a police officer in the sense that she does a lot of just sort of like relaying facts and relaying stories in a a very straightforward manner. And so there's not a ton of like fluff, I guess, or like she doesn't uh, expand a lot. It is reflective in places, but it's very just sort of relaying information, um, which I think sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But she has a really, um, really like astute sense of humor. And so there's some really funny moments in there as well. But I think it's a really important book. The introduction talks about being like a witness. And so I think it serves that purpose sort of of witnessing what all of these traumas and the institutional racism that she experienced, what that effect had on her and her family. And so and so what it is like. And so I think as sort of a witness document of like, this is what I experienced. This is what happened to my family. And this is what the result was for us. It's really powerful in that way. So a tough book, I think, but also a really good and interesting one of someone bringing a lot of different perspectives to an institution that historically doesn't have those perspectives represented. So that's Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience by Veronica Gori. Oh, wow. Thanks for talking about that. I mean, every now and then you just got to read a harder book. I know that Mm -hmm. it can feel especially difficult in these times. I found that depending on the subject, that can help me just by focusing on a different difficult subject than like the ones Mm -hmm. at hand. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Especially if there's any kind of recourse or just like at the end, it's like, oh, people are working on this. It's, It's sort of cathartic. Yeah. Anyway, before I talk about my next one, I want I remembered that there. So, okay. I wanted to talk about this because in this next book, the, one of the texts used is Alexander de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And it reminded me that in a book I was reading, they talked about the basically said this quote is often misattributed from Democracy in America. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And I looked it up. And it's this very oft used quote, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. And that is cited from Democracy in America by Alexander de Tocqueville. It is nowhere in the text. So if someone says that and they say, this is from Democracy in America, you could say, no, it's not. (laughs) It's a good fact check. I appreciate that. (laughs) Anyway, so my other new pick for this is An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States by Kyle T. Mays. This is part of the Beacon History series. Oh. We have talked about that um, series a number of times on here. Kim, didn't you just cite one of them last week or the last episode? Uh, no, I haven't talked about one in a while, but I love these. They, they just do like such interesting perspective shifts. Yeah, it's part of the Beacon Press Revisioning History series, which includes things like a Black Women's History of the United States, which we've definitely talked about. It was a new Mm -hmm. release last year, I think. Uh, Disability History of the United States, Queer History. Maybe somewhat recently you talked about an African-American and Latinx history. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Oh, and an Indigenous People's History of the United States. Like, there's a bunch in this, and I'm excited that there's a new title. They're all, like, pretty short. This one's just under 300 pages. So, you know, really kind of distilling that, but also getting Mm -hmm. some really good, again, like, revisioning of history in there. So this is the first intersectional history of the Black and Native American struggle for freedom in the United States. 
and it is an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States, again, by Kyle T. Mays. And Mays is a history uh, professor at UCLA, and it's just, it's so cool. Okay, so he talks about how he goes all the way back to pre-revolutionary America, right? So kind of going, you know, more towards like what the uh, 1619 project, like really focusing things on like things started in the 17th century. So pre-revolutionary America going into uh, the movement for Black Lives, contemporary indigenous activism. Mays is an Afro-Indigenous historian, so this absolutely makes sense that he would be writing this book, and talks about how the foundations of the U.S. are rooted in anti-Blackness and settler colonialism, and how these foundations carry into today, which again, this is something that I love about history. This stuff isn't just, it didn't just appear out of nowhere, right? Like, there are roots for it. There are reasons that we are doing the things that we're doing. And by looking at those causes, we can start to address them because we can figure out why they came to be and why they are persisting, like what is still happening with this. One of the sort of main points that he talks about is how the calls for justice by Black and Indigenous people have always uh, sort of been at the base to uproot white supremacy, which is another reason that this is just extremely relevant to everything that's going on today. In terms of what I was referencing at the very beginning with the Alexander de Tocqueville piece, he not only talks about pop culture and how that sort of like ties in, but also texts like the Declaration of Independence and Democracy in America by de Tocqueville. And uh, oh, he also covers the civil rights movement and freedom struggle. It's just like, there's a lot, but again, in a short number of pages, which I love <laughs> as a nonfiction reader. I know that sometimes nonfiction can be difficult to pick up because you're like, oh, I just want like a story. But if it's shorter, I'm always more likely to pick it mm-hmm. up because I'm like, okay, I have a better chance of like getting through this. And that's another thing I love again about this series. So that is an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States by Kyle T. Mays. Yeah, I think that's what I love about this series too, is it really distills down a ton of stuff into like a digestible format, but it is all all the ones that I've read have been written in a way where you're like, I want to learn more about this thing. And then you can go out and find more information and it gives you sort of the like the touchstones you need to like deepen your learning in different ways. But as an overview and then kind of together, they really give you like a new way to think about history in our country, which I just think is fascinating. And so I'm super glad that this series exists. And let's talk about our second sponsor, which is 1000 Perfect Weekends from National Geographic Books. This is, oh, this is great because lately I have no idea what to do <laughs> on the weekend. I'm like, I don't know, read. So this is packed with innovative travel ideas and inspiring photographs. It is a gift worthy. Uh, and uh, is cited as a bucket list reference, which features 1,000 dream escapes from beach retreats to mountain resorts, exotic cities, and wild adventures around the world. So if you're looking for a way to unplug from the busy work week, as we all are, uh, or take the family on a quick getaway, or add a weekend to a vacation itinerary, this practical and inspiring book provides the perfect way to plan your next escape. I just love that it has photos. It is a fun-packed guide that offers an adventure you can experience in 36 to 72 hours, which is perfect length. Trips cover more than 40 countries around the world. You'll also find 50 snackable, which 
I like that adjective. Top 10 lists from the best places to go antiquing to the most relaxing spas to the top museums in the world. Uh, you can add all of these to your bucket list. And the, oh, it also has first person accounts from travelers who have checked out all oh. of these locations. So they have done the work for you. Again, if you know someone who is just like, uh, either they love just going on little jaunts or they don't know what to do, like uh, what I just said. <laughs> this is a perfect gift. So 1,000 perfect weekends from National Geographic Books. That sounds awesome. Yeah. How fun. Especially now that like we can think a little bit more about traveling and like some of that stuff. So very cool. All right. So uh, this week's theme is one suggested by a friend of mine, and it is fell in a hole or things underground. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, we both thought was funny, and then for me anyway, turned into a much more like difficult topic to find books on. So it was an interesting uh, research exercise for me. I don't know, do you have anything else to add? Uh, I just thought it was really funny because it says fell in a hole. All right. So um, my first pick is a book that I read several years ago and really loved uh, called Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster 10 Miles into the Darkness by Neil Sweetie. And I'm just going to read like the summary of this one because I think that he like, captures it really well in the book summary. Um, and I, I, I have never been able to describe it better. So a quarter century ago, Boston had the dirtiest harbor in America. The city had been dumping sewage into it for generations, coating the seafloor with a layer of black mayonnaise. Fisheries collapsed, wildlife fled, and locals referred to floating tampon applicators as beach whistles. In the 1990s, work began on a state-of-the-art treatment plant and a 10-mile-long tunnel, its endpoint stretching further from civilization than the Earth's deepest ocean trench, to carry waste out of the harbor. With this impressive feat of engineering, Boston was poised to show the country how to rebound from environmental ruin. But when bad decisions and clashing corporations endangered the project, a team of commercial divers was sent on a perilous mission to rescue the stymied cleanup effort. Five divers went in, not all of them came out alive. This book is so fascinating, especially if you are like someone like me who is interested in like government and infrastructure and how politics plays into making good decisions about infrastructure and the way that we take care of our spaces and our environment. And so in the book, the author like just goes really deep into like the lives of all of the divers, engineers, politicians, lawyers, and investigators involved in this tragedy in which five divers went into this tunnel to try and solve a problem that was created because of politics and money and uh, like people making decisions with no thought about the impact and having these men die because of the just like bad corporate decisions at the top of this project. And so it is just really, it's incredible. It is wonderfully told. It is like very tense and like very well put together, but also like really makes you ask tough and big questions about like, what is the cost of these enormous projects? What can technology solve like for pollution or do we need to look at other other options? And then like, who are the people that are actually most affected? And it's never the people making the decisions about what to do. And it's just very, an institution's failing individuals all the time. And I just, I just read it a few years ago, but it came out, I think in like 2014 and I just page turner, like I couldn't put it down. It's really good. So, Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men, and a Disaster 10 Miles into the Darkness by Neil Sweetie. Oh, wow. Do you know what this reminded me of when we were first talking about this topic was the 30 Rock episode, Into the Crevasse? 
I don't remember that one. It's where Jack talks about how sometimes to get out, you have to just keep going deeper, which is like contrary to all your instincts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, he talks about getting stuck. So that just reminded me. But anyway, uh, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities with this topic. Uh, I was immediately thinking of archaeology. There's a mm-hmm. the Stuff You Missed in History class does an unearthed episode a few times a year, which is just stuff dug up from the ground. We also, of course, have like mining and that kind of thing. My first pick is The Mole People, <laughs> Life in the Tunnels Beneath New York City by Jennifer Toth. So, okay, this book is really interesting. <laughs> It came out in 1995. What caught my attention was obviously the title, right? The Mole People, because you've heard of that probably in pop culture. I mean, like every uh, procedural crime show has one of like people living underground that commit a crime or like have crimes committed against them. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm partway through this one. And it's really interesting because she talks about very specifically at the beginning. She's like, people have a lot of feelings about the phrase mole people, right? Because it's very dehumanizing. Like literally Mm -hmm. you're (laughs) you're, you're saying mole people. And she said that she, it's one of those things where she like intentionally used it. And I just, I I feel like it's that alone, like that section is worth reading. Um, But then she talks about going underground and talking to the people who are, you know, struggling with homelessness or who have chosen just to live there and sort of why they are doing that. What I thought was maybe most fascinating was she's like, would I do it again? And she says, no. She was like this, I encountered so many difficult stories that Basically, it was just like it was so hard and like things that I saw and like all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was like, it was so difficult that I I would not again. But the fact that she did and again, like the fact this was written in 1995, I feel like is also almost like a like a cultural artifact because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's pre cell phone. It's like early Internet. And like the thought of going down and having these conversations, you don't like I have my cell phone with me constantly. And I don't remember. I guess it doesn't work underground. <laughs> but like, it feels like such a safety blanket. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're just like, you're just like on your own, like going mm-hmm. down. So it, it really speaks to this, I think, almost idea that we had with this fell in a hole theme, not to get to whatever about it. But just really like you're down there and you just you just got yourself and like maybe a companion you've brought with you. But this is a, a specifically it's about the there are at least at the time in 1995, there are thousands of people who would live in abandoned subway tunnels um, under Grand Central and like is specifically talking about New York City and what their lives are like, why they were living down there, what the different sort of like communities are, how they feel about government agencies and um even like homeless organizations some of them were talking mm-hmm. about how they did not like homeless organizations because they had their own agenda and it was just it's really interesting and obviously there's a there's a huge variety of people who live down there the fact that this is again not to keep harping on the fact that this came out in 1995 but this was over 25 years ago mm-hmm. which does not feel like <laughs> But at the same time, yes. So this is a a book I would not have found if we were not doing this topic. So I am excited to have found it. It's such a sort of like unique perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, that is The Mole People, Life in the Tunnels Beneath New York City by Jennifer Toth. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. 
My next pick is also a book I would not have found had we not done this topic, so I'm excited to share it. Uh, It's called Built, The Hidden Stories Behind Our Structures by Roma Arguala. And so she, the author, is a female structural engineer, which is a, a woman working in a profession that is not traditionally held by men. Um, she, her, her probably most well-known project is the Shard, which is the tallest building at the time the book was written in Western Europe. I'm not sure if it still is or not. But So this book is a memoir about her experiences as a structural engineer, but it is also a book about structural engineering and like what does that mean and how does engineering help make the cities and buildings and famous structures that we know work. Uh, and so it is about what goes into creating this built environment and specifically like how the building is built, what it is constructed upon, so how the underground pieces of a building help support it, and then how buildings actually like stay up. And so it's a really fascinating mix because there's like sections that are teaching you about different like forces that affect buildings. So there's a whole section about um, like compression and how pushing down sometimes affects buildings and then um I can't remember what the other one was, but it's about how like pulling down also affects the strength of buildings. And then she uses a lot of really interesting examples to show how when those forces are not harnessed correctly, they can go badly very quickly. And so she also kind of offers like a history of construction and how we have like developed more and better techniques for building really big buildings and particularly like what happens underground when we need to do that. She looks at like how people have tunneled through mountains and what that looks like, how they have built enormous bridges, how they have like held in water through dams and all sorts of different kinds of infrastructure. And so it's about the history, it's about the people, it's about particular projects, it's about her life story and how like engineering works. So it's just a really cool like intersection of a bunch of different kinds of things. And it feels like as I was saying that, I was like, boy, how does this book like hold all of that together? And it somehow really does. She's just very good at like jumping from topic to topic. Her explanations of engineering are super clear. Um, She herself has like an interesting story. And so, you know, it all just kind of like works and is really fascinating. So um, I think this one's really fun and I it's an interesting read. So Built, The Hidden Stories Behind Our Structures by Roma Arguala. Ooh, that does sound really good. Dang. Yeah, it was fun when I was trying to find good examples. I was like, that sounds really interesting. And then I checked it out from the library and I was like, it is. Good job. <laughs> um, I have a – so I wanted to do at least one archaeology book because, mm-hmm. again, I immediately had thought, oh, archaeology. But this one is a uh, – it's for kids, which does not mean adults cannot read it. But I, this feels like a perfect thing for like ages, I don't know, seven to 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have kids. I feel like this is accurate, maybe. But so it is Accidental Archaeologists, the True Stories of Unexpected Discoveries by Sarah Alby. This uh, talks about archaeology, what archaeologists actually do. You know, they're not like Indiana Jones, unfortunately. Did I tell you I was the boulder from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark for Halloween? You didn't tell me, but I saw it on Instagram and it was amazing. It was, we had to be characters from movies that came out in 1981. <laughs> anyway. All right. So archaeology. So this, uh, so it's all accidental, right? So people stumbling across these things, which includes the Rosetta Stone and Pompeii and Herculaneum and the a- hidden African burial ground in New York City, which there is a monument to if you go there. And the boy who found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, how they found Richard III in a parking lot, uh, which was pretty recent. 
And it just, you know, all kinds of like stumbling across things, which is exciting because then, you know, if you're a kid, you're like, oh, maybe I could find something, which like maybe. Um, but anyway, it's just it it's very fun and very accessible and kind of like a way to get kids interested in archaeology and like finding out also about history at the same time, which is super cool. So uh, Accidental Archaeologists, True Stories of Unexpected Discoveries by Sarah Albee. That sounds really fun. I like that as a pick. So yeah, there's uh, four books about connected to things underground, and there are there are many others, but there's just a taste. I like the variety we were able to find. That was covered a lot of different stuff. So yeah, nice, nice job, us. Way to go. <laughs> All right, so we will wrap up the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading right now at this very moment. As I said in the beginning, I'm playing Animal Crossing, so I'm between books, but the one that I am considering picking up next or that I think I will pick up next is called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. Uh, And this is a book about how we get together and how we spend time together and how to make those experiences more meaningful and memorable. And so she is a facilitator of group gatherings. And so she shares a lot of her perspective and expertise in that and explores different types of gatherings and how we can make them better. And I I don't know, like, I've had this book kind of on my shelf for a long time. And I just I think we're in a, a situation where like, gathering is starting to happen more. And so how can we like really make those connections valuable? And how can we build good, strong connections with each other through the through through gatherings? And I'm I'm just interested in that. So I'm thinking that's what I'll pick up next. The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. Oh, yeah, we were talking right before the podcast about how being with other people now is awkward and draining. (laughs) But but important, uh, important nonetheless. I am reading Chanel's Riviera, Glamour, Decadence, and Survival in Peace and War from 1930 to 1944 by Anne de Courcy. I heard Anne de talk on a podcast about this, and it's just, it's really interesting. It doesn't, it talks about Chanel, but it more focuses on the sort of atmosphere at the Riviera during this time, 1930 to 1944, and all of the different people and like the art scene that was there and the eventual sort of like uh, unfortunate heavy Nazi collaboration happening among sort of the wealthy elite who were there um, at the time, including uh, apparently uh, Chanel. I'm not quite at that part, but I've heard things in the past. So yeah, interested in finding out more about that. And in conclusion, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. Uh, If you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.